Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to dive deep into some of the reasons why these COVID jabs are likely not the best thing. And the way we do that is by examining the data. And we have a skilled expert in in defining that. And the data I'm referring to is the VAERS database, which is probably one of the finest tools on the planet. Admittedly, it has its flaws and drawbacks, but there really are in the entire world, not a better system to collect the data. And we're going to be talking to Jessica Rose, who is an interesting panoply of amazing serendipities. And she has accumulated the skill set that is almost optimized for helping us understand what's going on. She is a computational biologist. And I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. And she has uh, postdoc degrees in um, two of my absolute favorite fields. And if I had to get a PhD, I would get a PhD in these is, is molecular biology and biochemistry. So, and then she also is a surfer. She, even though she's an, a native Canadian, she caught the bug and actually did her postgraduate training in Israel, where she was able to apply that bug to surfing and was going to go to Australia to surf, but you know what happened? It the COVID hit and she could not go. So now she had to come up with something else. And she decided, well, I'm going to be a programmer. I'm going to code. So she, she picked a, a, an obscure programming language. I never heard tell this is called R, which I guess works for statistics and graphics. And so she used that and she said, I'm going to work on the VAERS database. And boy, oh boy, she's been working at it. And she's come up with the most amazing pieces of information that is out there. And I'm, we're, we're, you're, you are going to be deeply grateful for what she's done the last two years after you listen to this conversation. So with all that backstory, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Well, I can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You got a Thanks. lot of work to do, my dear. <laughs> that was lovely. I, uh, I enjoyed listening to that. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, I, was, uh, I appreciate what you're doing, but the serendipity is really intriguing. I'm a big fan of serendipity. And usually it occurs in people when they're in the zone and their yeah. life just seems to flow to them. And your serendipity with this is really extraordinary. It really is. And I'm very impressed. So um, I guess, let me see, there's so many things that we can start on, but if, is there anything you'd like to expand on in the, the brief bio I mentioned? Um, no, I'll just introduce my cat. This is Chuck. Okay. <laughs> Everybody already knows who he is because he appears in every single interview that I do. But um, no, I uh, I guess that that about sums it up. Um, yeah, I, I'm also uh, very interested in uh, sci-fi. We were we, you just mentioned that now, so. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So I love I love sci-fi. I mean, some of the best books I've ever read were sci-fi. Uh, I haven't read it for a long time. I've been mostly reading nonfiction. <laughs> like, I would say 98.5% of the books I read are nonfiction. 
but it's it is very especially good sci-fi it's just it's mind-blowing what it can do because there's no limit i mean you don't have to create an expensive set or or graphics or anything you can just create the illusion with words which is amazing mm -hmm. yeah. so um but anyway let's that's great for a background now i'm would like you to go into some of the amazing things you've been finding. There's so many, I, there's so many, of them, I don't know, even begin to know where to start. <laughs> it's like, what, 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 I'll let you prioritize it. I mean, if, if, you know, I can give you some starters, but I thought, I think you're, you, you know, the data. So I'll let you, you hit it. Like what, well, actually let's do this. I think the most impressive element of this is the staggering number of deaths. Oh, wait, before we go there, I, I, let's get it. We need, we need to go into a historical perspective of theirs. And not many people know this, and you may not even be aware of this, but VAERS, which is sort for vaccine adverse effects reporting system, um, is an outcome of the 1986 act. Yeah. When, and I'm very good friends with Barbara Lowe Fisher, who is the, um, the lay person representative in the in Congress and this, this whole legislation was, was going on. So for those of you not familiar with the 1986 Act allowed the, the vaccine companies to become, uh, to, to have no immunity against prosecution for, or any lose any yes. liability. So as a concession to that, Barb and a few of her friends pushed for this reporting system. And part of it was that they did, were, uh, and vaccine adverse reactions reported previously, sure, but it was there was no centralized database, and she and her friends wanted to make certain that the centralized reporting occurred, not only occurred but also that lay people, non professionals, could input their data into the system. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't know the story of that. So that that 1986 act was obviously 35 years ago, but the, theirs never. It took them four years to create this database, so it didn't be, get launched until 1990. And interestingly, and perhaps you can discuss on this too, because I was talking to Barb about this morning, I want to get my facts right. But if anyone's been listening to the, about the VAERS, they know it's just a, an unbelievably complex, well, it's complex, but it seems to be designed to, to put massive barriers to uh, limit anyone enter, uh, entering the data, primarily because you have 30 minutes, a 30 minute time limit to enter the data. And if, and if that's not bad enough, it, it, I don't know, I've never done it, entered that on betas, but it just disappears and you lose all the data you entered. You got to start over from scratch. Yeah, per page. And, yeah, and then here's that, what I didn't know prior to this morning is that theirs was not always like that. They, at some point, I'm going to find out, hopefully before we get this article published, that what year they, they made those changes. Clearly, it was a deliberate intent to make it, extraordinary challenging to input data into VAERS. Wow. So maybe you can comment on that and then we'll, we'll I'll, I'll add another element and we, then we can go on into what you found. Yeah, I, well, I, I didn't know that this wasn't, I mean, it, it's, it, it makes sense to me actually, you know, with the advent of computers and, and they got better and websites got better. And so it kind of makes sense that it would change, but I'd really like to know when, because that, uh, that's an interesting question. It does take a about a half an hour to file uh, an adverse event report to VAERS, uh, which is a long time. And it's a, it's a consecutive um, uh, series of online pages. It's quite thorough. 
Um, and if you don't complete each page in the time allotted, then you have to start again, which probably frustrates enough people that they don't start again, especially if you're, say, a GP at the end of a 14-hour shift and you have to enter 10 of these, for example. And, and so that's so easily fixed. All you got to do is create a case report file and they, they, they send you an automated email so that you can go back to that file and fill it in when you have time. Yeah. That's it. 100% so, easy. yeah. There are very, uh, there's, it's funny because it probably is one of the best adverse event data collection systems in the world, but it's completely lamentable. I mean, it's, 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 it's antiquated, which is probably the main By design. Right. It's probably the main reason why it's, it's got these imperfections and dysfunctions. It's also very, um, people uh, oriented, like humans are actually entering the data. Um, and with humans, there comes error. So, you know, there, there are many, many problems with this system, but nonetheless, um, despite whatever anybody thinks about theirs, it is acting probably ironically as a pharmacovigilance tool, which is what it was designed to be used for. This is, that means that it, um, it's a way to detect safety signals that weren't detected during pre-market testing or clinical trials. So it is functioning that way because there are many, many safety signals being thrown off by the data in VAERS. Um, just for an example, everyone's heard of myocarditis now. Well, if, if, if you're awake, you've heard of myocarditis, which is one of the safety signals being thrown off uh, in VAERS. And so we've learned that it happens in uh, young people, uh, more so in boys. Um, we've learned a lot of things. So if, if now is the right time, I can, I can explain to you, uh, you know, what's, what's going on in VAERS generally that should alarm everybody and uh but but if you wanted to ask me yeah i could i just want to make a comment on the the discrepancy in the gender toxicity from this this vaccine it is it, because i've got insights i interviewed steve kirsch uh last week and his research shows that for some reason testosterone has a as a is a really important um connection to COVID-19, it actually facilitates the entry of the spike protein into the cells. And it does this through an enzyme, through actually activating this enzyme. And I forget, it's a long name. It's not a typical enzyme that does it. So if you, if you block, actually he, he got into this because he's really, of course, known for uh, one of the positions in the FLCCC and uh, frontline COVID commission or something. I forget what the other C is, but anyway, he's one of those visions along with Paul Merrick. And one of the treatments for it is a, is a, uh, an androgen blocker, a spironolactone, which is normally a diuretic. So that seems to help. And, but this appears to be the discrepancy that we're seeing. It's due to this effect on the, the, the androgen's effect on the spike protein. Yep. I mentioned that when I, when I show my slide of myocarditis and. Oh, you, you knew that. I didn't oh, know yeah. it left. I did not oh, know yeah. it. What's the, name of the, what's the name of that enzyme? 
I, I, I know about the androgens. I can't remember the name of the, the okay. uh, yeah. Thymus. Yeah. So, yeah. I, it's an obscure one for sure. But anyway. All right. So, yeah. Why don't you um, go on and let us know what you found? All right. Well, the the most striking thing that anybody can do, and I implore everybody to do this. And by the way, the reason why I chose theirs uh, as a data set to improve my R skills was because it's very accessible. You can just go to their website and download the CSV files. You can play with it in Excel or you can use R. Uh, whatever is compatible with the CSV file. There are three separate files that you can download for the domestic data set, which includes the patient data, patient, the, the individual's data, um, the symptoms or the adverse events that they reported, and it can be up to 15 different uh, types, and the, um, the, in, the injection data. So like what type, what company, backslot, all this stuff. So you can download these files, you can merge them so that as per VAERS ID, you have a lot more information. So you, you, you merge these three files so that you have maximum output. Um, so that's what I did. And all you have to do is count the number of adverse events in, that have occurred in 2021 in the context of the COVID-19 products. You can exclude all the other vaccines to isolate the signal and compare that number to the total number of adverse events reported in every single year going back 30 years. And there's absolutely zero comparison. The average number of adverse event reports for the past 10 years is 39,000. And that includes the adverse event report data for all of the vaccines combined. And there are a lot of them. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of products. So we're looking at about 39,000 total adverse events as opposed per year, to per year, per year, per year for the entire year, as opposed to 675,942 in the domestic data set alone. And this does not include the underreporting factor, which we should talk about. Oh, we definitely will. But, and it's important to note that we're recording this session almost at the one-year anniversary of the vaccine introduction. Yep. So the timing yep. is perfect. We're very, very close. I, I keep saying, you know, when I say, talk about this information, I'm like, we're not finished 2021 yet. But <laughs> I, we, made we made it. Um, so yeah, this is the same trend. By the way, that's more than a 1,600% increase in reporting. Um, we see the same trend when we isolate uh, adverse events, uh, standalone adverse events like death. Uh, there are over 10,000 deaths reported to VAERS now in the context of these products in the domestic data set alone, not including the underreporting factor. And the previous uh, 10 years, the average was 155 deaths for the entire year for all the products combined. This is over 6,000% increase in reporting for deaths. So, the question I have been posing to the FDA, the CDC, and whoever wants to listen to me is what's the cutoff number? Because death, you know, you kind of think of that as being one of the most, uh, the worst outcomes uh, in terms of adverse events in the context of, say, a vaccine or a biological product. 
I think there are worse things than death personally, but most people think that death is pretty bad. So that's why I always talk about death in this context. What's the cutoff number here? How many people, how many more people have to die in order for these products to be deemed unsafe? So that's, that's, that's well, basically all, all you have to do in bears. I mean, you can stop there. You don't have to look at anything else, but there's so much more. <laughs> oh, I know. We're going to get into that. So if you listen to Steve Kirsch, who's, who I'm sure you're familiar with, he, cause he's compiled some of the underreporting statistics that we'll go into in a moment, but he contends that, and I don't know what your, what your evaluation is, but that the CDC does not acknowledge there are any deaths. They don't admit to one single death from the COVID jab. Nope. They, they, they are holding fast to their claim that not one of the adverse event reports of death in VAERS is because of the products. They're holding fast. There are GPs and medical doctors and nurse practitioners who are also spouting this garbage. It's not even statistically plausible to say that not one death out of the 10,000 something something were caused. It's, it's, it's not scientific to say that. So actually, I'm happy when people say that because it's really it's going to be really easy to disprove. I think I already have. But uh, showing causation with epidemiological or biological da- data is notoriously difficult. You can yes. do it. All right. I didn't realize it was statistically possible, but if well, you know, it probably do. Yeah, you can use something called the Bradford Hill criteria, which is a set of 10 criteria that you should satisfy in order to show very strong evidence of causal relationship. And one of the most important of these is temporality, of course, because one Mm -hmm. thing has to come before the other. And the shorter the duration between those two, the higher the likelihood that there's a causative effect. So um, when you're talking about people, like percentages of people who died, uh, having died within 24 hours of one of their jabs, let's say you're talking 50%. (laughs) That's, that's kind of suspicious to me. Yeah. I'm glad you laughed because it is funny and, and they completely deny the, the causal effect. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a coincidence. (laughs) Of course, of course, it's just a coincidence. So yeah, Steve and I are good friends, and uh, and we we've been working very closely on all of this stuff for a long time. So he his underreporting factor is uh, forty one, mm-hmm. and he estimated that uh, based on a peer reviewed publication, um, which estimated uh, the uh, anaphylaxis uh, numbers and. So he used anaphylaxis as a proxy for death. So what I did, he got number the, the number 41. So what that means to anyone who doesn't understand is that all of these numbers that you hear me or Liz, sorry, the, the open VAERS numbers, mm-hmm. when you hear us say these numbers, you have to multiply them by 41 if you want to go with Steve's estimate or 31 in the case of mine. M- mine is the most conservative estimate and I... I basically just did it as a fun exercise. So I took Pfizer's phase three clinical trial data that they presented to the FDA. And there were a little over 18,000 participants in the drug, let's just call it the drug group for Pfizer uh, and the placebo groups. And 
there were a certain percentage of individuals in each arm that succumbed to what we call a severe adverse event, which includes death, hospitalization, visit to the ER, a life-threatening adverse event, uh, disability, or birth defect. So it was 0.7% of people in the drug arm succumbed to a severe adverse event, according to their data. So I used that rate, and I multiplied it by the number of uh, people who had been injected with one shot of Pfizer on a certain date. It was August 10th, I believe. I published this in a, in a paper uh, last June, I think. And um, that number becomes your expected number of people based on how many people had been given one dose that would succumb to a severe adverse event based on their data. So you take that number, you divide it by the number of reports of severe adverse events in VAERS, and you get a multiplication factor or an underreporting factor. So when you use that base data set, the Pfizer phase three clinical trial data, you get 31. And uh, Ronald Kostoff has also published a paper in toxicology reports, um, and his estimate is 100, I believe. So whenever you're talking about the underreporting factor, uh, I think people should talk about it in terms of a range, because each adverse event is going to have their own. Like death is not going to be reported in the same way as a cough, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to be a range. So you use with discretion, use with caution, but acknowledge like the CDC and the FDA are not doing that there is an underreporting factor, first of all. And, (laughs) And perhaps you could also acknowledge that at least some of the deaths reported to VAERS are because of the injections. Those people, you know, not not 100% of them would have died anyway. You know, that's not how that's not how life works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm believe that when you published your paper and you did the calculations, you you weren't because it was on the Pfizer trial, clinical trials, right? That you published it on the data. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure you're familiar with the whistleblower now from the Pfizer trials, right? That report made her story to the British Medical Journal, and Peter Doshi published it, and you know really exposed the underlying belly of the beast, where she just outlined all these problems with these uh, subcontractors that Pfizer hired to actually perform the trials. I mean, yeah. the, from receptionists doing doing injections that weren't trained to having just blatant violations of, of needles outside in yeah, the OSHA guidelines. And most importantly, yeah. you know, not a good follow-up, certainly no informed consent, virtually no informed consent, but not even if they had an adverse respe- uh, response uh, that the, the, the reporting system they used wasn't designed to capture all, the, all of the good ones. I mean, I don't even know if death was in part of that one. <laughs> So it was just a just panoply of just major concerns and complications. So with that going on, if that was if you use the Pfizer data, it's clear that, that that it was even worse than the 31 times. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's a very good point. Uh, I think if people actually knew the reality of what was going on, they they would just decide very quickly right now never to go near these things again. Um, this isn't hearsay, people, it's, and it's not conjecture. The, the, the clinical trials were garbage, and there's no safety data. 
That's, I'm not just saying these words, and it's very reflective in all of these adverse event data collection systems all over the world. They're all saying the same thing. The UDRA, the yellow card, us, Australia, SA bears. Well, by us, I mean the US. <laughs> they're, they're, why did I say that? They're, they're all saying the same thing. Um, as an example, myocarditis in young boys, you know, it, it's, it's not something that you can ignore. And there's a reason why this is happening. It's because they're not safe. <laughs> so, yeah. That's for sure. So one of the other flaws, I mean, I'm glad you confirmed what Steve told me, and I didn't have the time to, to verify it, that the CDC is absolutely denying there are any zero deaths associated with this vaccine, the, the COVID jab. So what's even more egregious from my perspective, well, that's pretty bad, is <laughs> the, fact, the fact that there's just no question that I mean, even using their data, you, you for every one person that supposedly a death is prevented, which I dispute. But if if, if you accept their data is valid, that you're going to kill four or five other people. Yeah. So and the, clearly, the overall mortality rate for those who've been jabbed has gone up significantly. I, I, I think the Israel data where you're at is like 13x compared to those who are unvaxxed is a increase in mortality rates. But the CDC had the audacity to publish a paper saying that <laughs> it, you have a radically reduced all-cause of death. In fact, it was decreased by like, I think a third, which is such an extraordinary statement because in some age groups, that would mean that all causes of death were eliminated, including accidents. So it was right. like this magic pill yeah, yeah. Would, would protect it, it you from all. Yeah, it elevates you to a new type of existence where where nothing can hurt you anymore. It's magic. That's what that means, people. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it it, that's the only explanation. That's the only explanation because it's it's so it's not based in reality. That, and no. what's what's shocking is that they think they yeah. can get away with it, but they are. They, they are, are for the most part. The authorities are um, the, the the white coat concept uh, is is it's it's very it's very real. Um, you, you put a white coat and a stethoscope on someone, and and they can they can you know dictate what is going on. Um, but what I don't get is uh, the ratio of doctors and researchers and physicians and nurse practitioners, and I don't know the, the actual numbers. So I'm making an assumption that there are fewer who are saying, hold on a minute, something doesn't seem right here. Because that's, that's I, I started doing that way over a year. I, it's almost two years ago. I've been going, wait a minute now. I mean, I'm, I'm in the testing zone, so it was easier to see early. But um, Well, you did it before Steve Kirsch. Steve Kirsch was still a believer like as May or June of this year. Yeah, well, yeah, he he has a really, really uh, amazing story. He actually made a video about it. And I, I was I mean, I know the story, but it was it was touching to see him convey it because, yeah, he 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 has firsthand experience from both sides. He 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 is injected, his family is injected. And then he he's done this 180. He, so he's a perfect example of 
the the whole process going from A to Z of you know being here and then being here, uh, which I think is important for people to see because everyone's facing this cognitive dissonance wall because none of this seems possible because it's so crazy. But but it but it's happening. I mean, people lie, but data don't. The numbers don't lie. You can't deny. That, it's crazy. They are denying it, but you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. They can, you know, they, they can make up dystopian Orwellian doublespeak. Uh, actually, ultimately dystopian, but it's Orwellian doublespeak, what I was trying to say, which is the exact opposite of what the truth is, and they can get away with it. That's what they've yeah. been doing. It's a strategy working so far. But I want to, you know, this is based on the data that's in there. So I want you to explain in some detail uh, this concept of the missing bears IDs. And so that, that which strongly suggest that the data is even worse than the numbers you quoted. I mean, oh. even with the end of reporting, because these there appear to be cases that are deleted. So can you go can you explain that? Yeah, so it's not an appearance, it's a reality. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is in my, my paper. Actually, it's what sparked my pharmacovigilance paper. I, I wrote a paper that was like a criti critical appraisal of the pharmacovigilance-ness of VAERS. And um, so that's a component of this, this missing data. There, there were some videos going around uh, a while ago saying there were like hundreds of thousands of reports gone missing. And I was like, what? So I, I wanted to look at this from the way I was analyzing the data to confirm or deny this and to find out just how many VAERS reports were going missing every week. Because every week, the VAERS data set is updated and you have to download it every week. And I have been doing this from January. So I, I have all of it um, because the data is overwritten every week. So if you miss out on, a, on an update, you lost all this data, which means that you might lose some people, which is really shocking. So, as part as a part of the vetting process, because wow, there's so much for me to talk about here. Okay, go for so it. <laughs> an enormous number of adverse event reports being made, and there's a proportion of them getting filed into VARES, and there's another proportion of them that are staying in VARES that aren't getting removed. So you can have duplications of VAERS reports because a GP and a family member can both file a VAERS report. So there are people whose job it is to make sure that these duplicates are combined and then only one VAERS ID is, is put into the front end file. So there, there are pertinent reasons why a VAERS ID might disappear. It didn't actually disappear. It just got changed to a different ID. And you can cross-reference these to find out which IDs are actually deleted for real and which ones were just changed to a number. And by the way, that is so messed up all on its own because there's no tracking system. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot track and trace a, a VAERS ID, which is a person, by the way, who took the mm -hmm. time and suffered an adverse reaction after trusting their government. Um, there's no way to determine it was if it was this and then it got changed to this, except if you do it by eye, which is what I did for the deaths, which was horrifyingly painful, but whatever. Um, wow. And you have, you essentially have all the data if you've been recording it since January, because there was only a few in December, right? 
Yep, I, I have it all. And so there are, to answer your question, there are missing uh, data. And so I, I stopped counting the missing data per week. I have a little algorithm that can find out, but it takes a little while to run. So because I have all this other stuff on the go, I stopped like doing this weekly update. Mm -hmm. But when I wrote the paper, um, so on the subject of that, the way, the, the way that I was determining if entries, if bears IDs, if people were disappearing um, was by, um, subtracting the, just finding out which VAERS IDs didn't show up in the next update, because you would assume that every single VAERS ID that got into the system that was vetted would stay in the system. And so the next update would have that data set and a little more, but that's not how it works. There are removals every single week and they're not explained. There's no explanation for these. So the first thing I did when I found this, it was over a thousand, was I checked, is there a high proportion of these deleted reports that are deaths? And, you know, it was something like, yeah. what was it? I don't even remember. It wasn't anything overly suspicious. It was something like 18%. And mm. then I checked severe adverse events. And then I checked children because this is a big one that's happening now. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about that. A lot of babies going missing in bears. They shouldn't be there, which is probably why they're being removed. But I, I don't know. I can only tell you what I'm seeing. So there wasn't anything overtly suspicious about the nature of the IDs. But that's not even the point. This is These are people that trusted in, in these products and the people who were telling them that they were safe and effective, they were healthy, they went out, they got the shots. Some of them, you know, uh, suffered an adverse event. Some of them died. And these reports got filed to theirs and then they got removed. That's atrocious. I'm, I'm not speculating here either. This is what is happening. You know, that's why I published it, because it's like none of those people have a voice now. They went through this horrifying experience, which no human should be going through, and then they got disappeared. I mean, that's that I don't even know what the word for that is. It's appalling. It's criminal. And so, it's criminal. Yeah. <laughs> it's a criminal offense. That's we should be locked up forever. Whoever decided to do this. So, what was the number again? Is it was a thousand for the whole year that were excluded? Uh, you mean the number of missing entries? Yeah, missing bears. Yeah. Uh, oh gosh. Was it a thousand time, per week? A thousand per month? I don't know. No, actually, it varied per week. It peaked at like hundred and ten missing entries per week, but it varied. Okay, so it could be it could be up to four or five thousand. Yeah, it probably is by now. So sometimes it was 50, but there was a steady, like kind of, you know, stepwise increase. But you know what? You're piquing my interest. I'm going to go check that out when I have some time later on. Um, but something that I wanted to mention, because everyone's starting to um, put this crap into little people now, the 5 to 11-year-olds. I, I actually spoke at this FDA hearing uh, in, in an attempt to, to, Steve did too, Mm -hmm. to convince these, um, these jury members uh, why it's a very bad idea 
Yeah. Not only and, a bad idea, but a pointless thing to do because the kids aren't affected by COVID. Um, but the, you know, the fact that these things are causing so many adverse events in adults, I mean, what's going to happen in children and you keep reducing yeah. the age and now you're putting into people who aren't, who haven't even gone through puberty. They haven't finished developing immune system, neurological system, cardiovascular system. They're, they're not finished yet. Like, you know, <laughs> so, um, well, you 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 and Steve's testimony was so compelling that the FDA unanimously approved it. Right, <laughs> no. exactly. Unanimously. Exactly. It was one abstention and the rest of them just said, oh, it's perfectly safe after what I heard. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, they talk about going into jail. Those guys, almost every single one. Well, they were all had massive conflicts of interest. They were all tied to farmers. Of course. Of course. Well, buddy there who said that we're not going to know how safe they are until we put them into people. I mean, this guy's the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. They used to have a good editor. Marcel Angel was really phenomenal. And she just, she wrote a whole book exposing the corruption in the industry. Uh, where did she go? <laughs> yeah, she's, I don't know where she, what she's doing now, but her book is pretty good. Marcia Angel, Marsha Angel, A-N-G-L-L. But anyway, so yeah, the, what, get back to the kids, because this is just beyond contemptible. The, you know, oh. And I definitely want you to go into the, the kids that have been accidentally in, uh, given the jab, too, because that's, that's another part oh. of the story. But, but let's go on to the 5 to 11-year-olds. Yeah, so th this is all the same story. Uh, it's one slide that I presented, and it contains all of the information you just mentioned. So this is... The like there there were two groups of uh, children that I presented for the five to eleven and the zero to eighteen, which which is what they call a pediatric subject. It's very very cold <laughs> clinical pediatric subject. So um, within the uh, zero to eighteen year old uh, age group, the the number of bears reports at the time that I gave that testimony was. Oh, I'm, I'm going to take a guess. Don't quote me on this. It was something like 5,570 reports where the MEDRA code, which is the, 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 the name that they give the adverse event that's reported, was product given to, to patient of inappropriate age. This was the most frequently occurring adverse event type for children that young, okay, for, for young children. And I, I thought to myself, wait a minute, how, like, this doesn't add up. Like, why are there so many reports of giving kids that are too young, depending on their, you know, in relation to their own definition? Like, you know, the first it was like, you know, let's let's put it into everyone over 12. And then they, they lower the age bracket, like I said, from five to 11. So there were so-called medical professionals injecting children without confirming their age. And then those children suffered adverse reactions in the thousands, sorry, in the tens of thousands, and this doesn't include the underreporting factor, and some of them died. In the five to 11 age group, two of them died. One was 11, one was 13. So they had been in, this was before the, the uh, young kid rollout. So these people had been, these little children had been injected and died. And, and the maximum time frame between the death and the injection in one of the kids was five days. The other one was one day. 
So this was in close temporal proximity. Now, the, the, the part that's more disturbing than that is that 30, I'm going on memory now from my slide. There were, at the time that I presented that data, there were, oh gosh, I'm trying to, something like 60 children had died yeah. between the ages of zero and 18. Yeah. Listen to this. And 38% of those children were under two. And now when I updated that slide, because I, mm -hmm. I update my, my slides every week, that percentage went down to 30% of the total number. And I'm like, wait now, that was 38 <laughs> last week. What happened to them? Missing so their ideas. Yeah, yeah, there are these enormous inconsistencies in the data. And another one. The myocarditis reports, like every week, I have about 100 different files which contain algorithms that run code for specific things. Like I have a kid's file, I have a, a cancer file, I have a you know, prion disease file. Anyway, so I run them all with the updated data. Myocarditis is one of them. And there was this big chunk of data for the 50 to 75-year-olds uh, pertaining to myocarditis reports last week. And this week, it's about half. And it's staggeringly obvious that something's very different in the data. The number went up, the absolute number of reports went up, but it seems to have shifted somehow. And there, the thing is, there could be a reasonable explanation. There could be a plausible explanation. But the fact that there's no reference at all to what to how this data is being shifted around, and there's no record, and there's no there's nothing. So we we as the public, and this is for us, we as the public have no idea what's actually going on. All we can say with absolute certainty is that something is going on. Yeah, there's no question. It's just reprehensible what's being done. Uh, the issue, though, as you, as you so accurately describe, is they're manipulating the statistics. And it just seems it's almost predictable that this, this type of tool should never have been allowed but yet they capitulated and surrendered and provided it. But gradually through the years, they've been corrupting it and essentially making it less and less helpful and meaningful. And it seems the trajectory may be to not even make it available, not even make it available unless you're some authorized government agency. That's the only one that can enter the data. The only ones. Yeah, every week well, I'm like- This, is the, this is the golden age. You can at least peek at the data. In the future, yeah. you won't be able to. Yeah, exactly. Every week I'm like, thank God there's data because when bear stops rolling in, I have nothing to do anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, but I'm waiting for that. I'm like, pretty soon they're not going to make it publicly available. Yeah, I, I, that, I, I think it's almost inevitable. This, the, yeah. this is a sore, even with the VARES database, they're, they're, just, they're denying that information, even though the data is right in front of their face. All I have to do is look at it. Mm -hmm. So Literally. imagine when they control that that stream of, of information. So well, they also have um, a more complete version. They mm -hmm. have all this extra demographic data 
that we don't get to see. So that's that's also weird. And and I would love to, uh, you know, I don't know if there's a way to FOIA some of this data um, without actually learning who the people are. Because you know, oh, you, you could try that. It'll, it'll take you 55 years to get the report. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was just crazy. So I want you to talk too about the female reproductive issues because that seemed to be spiking too, especially mm -hmm. if it's if it's the jabs given in the first trimester. It, was, it seems to be like ten thousand cases of, of miscarriage or spontaneous abortions, as it's called medically. So, and I, I actually saw a video of a Canadian physician yesterday who I know uh, Dr. yeah yeah do you probably know him? you know if I'm obviously know his name. And he reported uh, 86 women in six months in Waterloo, Ontario, 86 women in, in, that normally see five to six beer in BC saw 13 stillbirths in 24 hours, 13. Yep. And all of them were vaccinated. All these yep. women were vaccinated. Yep. So I've been saying this for a long time. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say things like that. It's like, I'm telling you, they're like, that's not what I mean when I say that. I mean, I, what I mean to say is this has been pretty, not obvious, but it's been seeable in VAERS for a very long time. I've been tracking what I call the female reproductive issues. And this is spontaneous abortions and many other uh, reproductive issues for females in, in combined into a, a group. So I use keyword searches and something everyone should know as well, the, one of the sneaky things about bears, it seems sneaky. When the reports started coming into bears in the early months, there was only one measure code, like I said, which is the, 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 the word that describes the adverse event, the official word. So there was one for miscarriages and it was called uh, abortion spontaneous. And as the data started rolling in, that became abortion spontaneous and abortion. And then it became those two plus uh, ectopic uh, pregnancy abortion. And then they changed abortion and spontaneous words. Like, you know, and, and so now there are like, three, how many, seven or eight different ways to say miscarriage mm -hmm. in VAERS. So in addition to those, there's a dysmenorrhea, amenorrhea, uh, uterine bleeding, uh, ovarian cancer. There's all sorts of stuff going on in women. Uh, Re-emergence re, uh, of um, uh, uh, endometriosis, all sorts of things that are going wrong with women's stuff. So I've been tracking this for a long time with a keen eye on the, the miscarriages. And we're up to now almost 12,000 reports. And again, not including the underreporting factor. And of those, there are over, um, well, there's a large percentage of those that are the, the miscarriages. So the, the signal for, for spontaneous abortions and VAERS has been there the whole time. And so the, 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 these confirmations are coming out left, right, and center. More recently, there, there's been this Pfizer document um, released that, that says confidential on it, but like everyone has it now. So I guess it's not confidential anymore. And I discovered something in it today that, that is in perfect line 
with what that citizen mathematician found in that uh, New England Journal of Medicine paper on the safety and the pregnancy thing, where if you change the denominator and you only you know, look at women in their first and second trimesters, then the actual percentage of women who succumbed to a spontaneous abortion was 82%, not 12. Mm -hmm. So their own data, Pfizer's own data that I analyzed today, and I, I wrote a little Substack article on it, it, they did the same thing. They used the same technique. They modified the denominator and they made it look like they just took out data. They just took out people and they changed the denominator. Manipulated it. Manipulated yeah, it. Yeah. And, and it looks like there's no safety signal. But when you actually read what they did and understand what they did, then it turns out to be 69 instead of whatever they quoted that succumbed to a spontaneous abortion in that group. So it's the same the same kind of thing. And it's like, if I was a sneaky person and I was in charge of trying to hide this stuff, these are the th the ways that I would try and do it. So I find it highly suspicious. And the fact that Daniel is, is telling the world what's going on in Canada right now, in, in two of our provinces, and these are just the ones we're hearing about. Mm -hmm. Imagine the numbers in reality, people like these, this is just what we're hearing about. And the fact that we're hearing it at all is remarkable because everything's being censored. So it's, it, it, it's really scary when you think about it. If you, if you multiply 700,000 by, by 41 or whatever underreporting factor you want to use, my God, like the rates of adverse events that people must be succumbing to in reality, they, they must be really, really, really high. Absolutely not something it's in, that- It's in the millions, clearly in yeah. the millions. Yeah. yeah, of course. We haven't seen anything like this before. And there's a good reason for that, everybody. <laughs> this is brand new tech and it wasn't safe. It wasn't safety tested. And I mean, clearly the efficacy data is-, is but um, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other show talking about what these things actually are. Yeah, so I'm curious, I believe, are the lot numbers indicated in the VAERS database? Yeah, but uh, th this is something I'm, I'm looking at with a keen eye. The VAX lot data, okay, for those of you who don't know, each manufacturer, and there are three uh, being distributed uh, in the States uh, from Pfizer, Moderna, and Janssen, each one of these manufacturers creates uh, lots of product and they're given a VAX lot number. And so this is something I looked at in back in January because I was like, there's definitely going to be some VAX lots that are more detrimental mm -hmm. than others. I just knew it. So, but the problem is if you try and show this using VAERS data, you run into these big problems with the VAX lot uh, data entry. The of the total number of entries, I mean, there were how there's like almost seven hundred thousand now. I I mean, I I don't know the exact percentage of vax lots that are actually entered properly, but it's quite low. Oh. So the bottom line is because they're entered so badly, and and I wrote a Substack article on this as well. It's it's funny what some people write in it, like. Uh, my, my dog didn't poop today. I mean, it's not that bad, but instead of a vax lot number, there's something weird, like, and wild and, and not helpful at all. It's like, where's the actual vax lot number? You're supposed to enter that data. 
So my point is it's very difficult to draw any conclusions using the, the actual Voxlot data. However, there are trends in certain Voxlots per manufacturer toward a higher association with the number of adverse events and also the severity of the adverse events. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this now. Um, it's possible, I mean, I don't know, it depends where you wanna go with this, but I think that it would be really interesting to find out if there's a way to do this. I don't think there is because of the minimal, the, the minimal data, but if you could find out where, like the distribution pattern across the United States for these fax lots, that, would, that might actually show you something really interesting. So there's definitely, I, I know that this is a thing, but I don't, it's really hard to show using VAERS data. I mean, maybe one of these days I'll get really ambitious and try and clean this up, the Vaxlot. But if, mm -hmm. if, if you saw it, you would be like, there's no, there's no hope for this. <laughs> Yeah. That, that's the conclusion I came to a few times. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is there's articles on the internet that suggest that 5% of the lots are responsible for almost all the deaths. Yeah, so th that's the kind of thing that I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't know, because uh, if you consider that only, like if you take Pfizer and you take the, the, the deaths uh, mm -hmm. imposed by Pfizer, associated with Pfizer, uh, and you look at the actual data that you have, it's such a small sample size. So, and the difference between the VAX lots causing the most adverse events, it's not very big. So again, there might be something to it, but I, I'm very, very, very cautious about saying anything yet about this. Uh, I'm being super devil's advocate with the Vax lot sure. uh, conclusions. Do you think they could be manipulating the data? Like, I mean, if they're deleting whole VAERS IDs, I mean, it's certainly reasonable. You mean writing in the Vax lots bad on purpose? No, no, like maybe deleting the data of the lots. I mean, intentionally corrupting the, the data, essentially, to confuse, to confuse analysis. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. I, I think that's definitely a possibility, but I think uh, uh, it's more likely that it's just accidental because people are overworked. I mean, okay. Part so, of so what I, the, the, the main question here that I'm curious, and you would know because you're analyzing this data, who enters this data mostly? Is it the professionals, the clinicians, the physicians, or is it the, the lay people, the people who've been yeah. damaged and hurt? Who, who's doing the so most for, reporting? For the most part, uh, it's the physicians. I think sixty-seven percent of the paper published. Two thirds. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, by um, McLaughlin. Uh, he he did this study on VARES and the the percentage of reports being filed by uh, by professionals to to kind of dispel the myth that most of the VARES reports are entered by like lizard people and that, that they're <laughs> fake. It's, it's actually a crim it's, it's a criminal offense to enter a VARES data that's fake. And, and it would be very hard to do so because as we talked about in the beginning, it takes a long time and you have to enter very, very specific data. So it, it wouldn't be easy to file a lot of fake reports. And there is a very heavy vetting process. Like they, mm -hmm. they've, extra, they've hired extra people 
to, to go through these. They had to because there's like hundreds of thousands of more reports than there ever have been in the past. So yeah, I think a lot of people's eyes and, and fingers are probably really, really tired. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the the bad field uh, entries come from, to be honest. Okay, it would make perfect sense. So you recently published or attempted to publish or did publish and was retracted a paper with uh, Peter McCullough. Can you tell us about that journey? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> do you have all night? Um, yeah, it's the saga of the poor myocarditis paper. Oh, dear. Um, so yeah, we submitted it to Current Problems in Cardiology. It got accepted almost immediately, peer-reviewed, editor-in-chief and I are back and forth. Everything's copacetic. Went up on uh, the electronic version, went up, went up on um, via Elsevier. It got immortalized in PubMed. Uh, we went through the process of uh, paying. We paid extra for the uh, color figures because the figures lose their meaning without color. And we, we signed the contract, everything was fine. And then one morning, uh, about two weeks later, I think it was, um, I got two emails and a message on my tablet that said, what happened to your paper? And I'm like, <laughs> and so, yeah, I have, I have the little, um, the tab open on my computer and I refresh like constantly because like when you publish a paper, for those of you who haven't done it, it's so exciting. And, and so you're, you're like, you know, checking its progress and, and it was being like tracked by this thing called Plum X because the social media world was going crazy over this paper. And I was like, Ooh, look, 40,000 people. And uh, so it was really exciting. And then, so this morning, I clicked refresh and sure enough, temporary removal was written beside the title. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I, I honestly didn't know. I, I'm, I'm uh, above all things, I'm, I'm a little bit naive. So I thought, you know, well, you know, I'll just ask them what happened. Like, maybe this is what they do before they give you the galley proof. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it cute? <laughs> uh, I am so Canadian. And so I, uh, I emailed them the editor-in-chief and the publisher, and I said, hey, uh, what's with this? And they didn't answer. And so I wrote them again, and I said, hey, I, I really wouldn't mind having an explanation because, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that this is, I, I sent it to everyone, like, that, that I know on my, my super think tank email lists, like, the heaviest hitters, and they were like, I, I asked them, like, is this normal? And they're like, no, what the hell? So everyone told me the same thing. They're like, something's wrong here. So... So that's when I got a little bit more insistent and, and I asked Peter, you know, uh, did, did you, do you know what this is? And he also got informed by a journalist uh, that the paper had been uh, temporarily removed or taken down. And so I think it was later, later the next day, we got an email saying from the publisher saying that they were reconsidering publishing because it had not been an invited paper. Uh, and, and Peter jumped on that immediately and he's like, no, 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 that's, that's not true. Here are some examples of that happening before, reinstate the paper or we're going to sue for breach of contract. And, and so we didn't hear from them for a week and then they wrote back, <laughs> pardon me, finally. And they said, uh, yeah, we're not going to publish the paper. We decided not to because they said it's written in their, uh, their, 
uh, what do you call that? Their rules, their rule book that at any point during the publication uh, timeline, they can just not decide, not publish it. So that's their prerogative. So they took it. And so, yeah, now, now we're in the litigation phase. We've sent the, uh, our letter of intent and we're waiting to hear. Um, I got a weird email though uh, for from them to approve the galley proofs for this paper. And I thought, what is going on here? And so I, I opened it up and I'm like, what is this? And of course I didn't I didn't say yes to anything because I, I don't I don't know what's going on anymore in the world. So I sent it to Peter and I was like, did they like cave or something? Like what's going on here? Like, should I, should I go through with this? And he's like, wow, this is really interesting. And so he told me to open the file that they wanted me to approve that they're claiming were the galley proofs, but it was just, <laughs> it was just uh, the, the withdrawn, you know, notification with, with like, if I had agreed or if I had accepted them or approved them or whatever, it would have meant that I would have um, been saying that we withdrew the paper Mm. of our own volition so it was kind of like a trick a trap yeah so peter said that's a trap don't fall for it make it clear to them that we do not approve these galley proofs so so i i i hope i did you know i can't say that two different ways (laughs) so yeah yeah. yeah, it's the ongoing saga and and by the way maybe the most important thing is that this paper had um it was on uh the myocarditis reports in VARES and how the data is skewed to the younger age groups and that uh, most of the reporting in VARES was in young boys aged 15. And there was a six-fold difference in reporting following dose two, which indicates dose response and causal effect and a 19 times above background reporting rate for myocarditis in the age group 12 to 15 for the United States. So there's a lot of stuff in that paper that was really important. And and it's great because there's a lot of other papers coming out now that that are 100% supporting what we found. You know, it's it's just what we found. It's not not debatable. Um, So yeah. yeah. And, and they, the, you know what, they yanked this paper five days before that uh, FDA meeting for the five to 11 year old. So I think it was kind of, it, I, I think it, that that's not a coincidence because I don't believe in coincidences anyway, because it would have, you know, informed people as to the potential risks in, in young people with myocarditis. So of course, they don't want that because they already bought 38 million doses for the five to 11 year olds that were ready to inject into people's arms. So, yeah. Nothing, so Peter, nothing on board. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing the story. I wasn't sure what the details were, but Peter's published, I believe, about 600 studies. So he's, he's a veteran in the, in the field. But it would seem to me that another option rather than suing them, although you can, could do them currently, would be to submit it to another journal. I mean, the paper's already written. You might have to change the style and such, but, you know. It's, yeah, it's already- he, uh, uh, he, he and I both agree that there's something about this paper that is more than just the content, even though the content is important. Uh, 
if if we manage to succeed, then I hope that this is going to set a precedent for other people because there are so many people having trouble getting their work published now. You know, yeah, you have to put it on a preprint server and then nobody, you know, it's not peer reviewed. And, you know, so there are a lot of troubles going on with the censorship. And and I I I just I'm kind of hoping that it's going to 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 give people a little um encouragement, like don't just, you know, republish somewhere else, don't just sit down and accept it and, and don't, you know, give up you know, this is wrong. And, you know, do do the right thing, which is like fight for what's right. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm being a bit too optimistic, I think, but never hurts. <laughs> no, no, I think it's great. And, you know, just to let you know, too, that reinforce the concept of censorship, it also extends to book publishing for the for the general population and you know, thankfully as we're talking and speaking now bobby kennedy's book uh, the, the truth about anthony fauci has been really one of the best-selling books on amazon for for a few weeks now but he would have never been able to get that book published read a traditional publisher and, and similarly my book would have been published it was also a best number one on amazon for a while earlier this year but i i i, I thought i'd I was. I wrote another book, or in the process of writing another book, it's about linoleic acid, which is really, I, I believe, one of the most important contributors to chronic degenerative diseases. That's just virtually underappreciated. Yeah. And and the reason I mentioned this is that I said, okay, let me try a book agent. I hadn't done. I've had published seventeen books over the years, and almost every one was a bestseller. And, and my last book was like it was number one in the U.S. So we we I, I had an agent, and we submitted it to the every single top leading publisher in the US and got rejected by every one of them. Wow. Every one of them with a history of 17 bestsellers. It's like, they, you know, they, it, that's censorship on steroids. Fortunately, yeah. there, are, there are other publishers. I can get the book published. It's not an issue, but all the traditional publishers decided not to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's on, everything's on steroids, like uh, in the censorship realm and, um, and th- this bubble of, of, um, of weirdness uh, surrounded by the safety of this new lexicon. It, it, it's like so impenetrable. Like something I'm realizing as I learn more about this um, and talk to more people is the genuineness of the lack of knowledge, like in, in people who are making decisions for everyone else. <laughs> like they literally don't know the reality of the dangers. They don't know that there's no informed consent. They don't know that this is in line with violating the Nuremberg Code. It like, you, you only have to look, but if you're not looking, and uh, yeah, so. Um, uh, speaking to that, and that aspect that you only have to look, uh, as we mentioned, the VAERS database is, op- is open to anyone who wants to look at it, but it's somewhat challenging and cumbersome for a non-professional to navigate through. So there's uh, there are two other um, entries into the data. One I believe is open bearers, which is more directed towards people who don't have a computer background or you know just a le- a more directed toward lay lay public. And then there's MetaAlert, which is really designed for people like yourself or researchers who are trying to comb through the data. So I'm wondering if you have experience with those and if you can comment on them. 
Yeah, I don't use MetaAlerts except if I if I use the Vares Wayback machine, which is like it's the Wayback machine for Vares. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. You can find out what they don't want you to know. And uh, and Open Vares is awesome. This is the um, the uh, brainchild of a good friend, and uh, and this is like the 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 happy fun version of VAERS. <laughs> you you don't have to do uh you don't have to know anything about how to navigate you can it, it's got pull down menus if you want to look at specific uh adverse events it's got charts it's got so it, it takes the VAERS data and it presents it to you like in a in a visually um uh, pleasing way i also do this i have a website but it's um it's not as I, I would say interactive. So all of this data that that I'm uh, processing, uh, I like the whole point. I, I didn't want to just be sitting here in front of my computer, like keeping this all to myself. I wanted every week for everyone who wants to see uh, what's happening with the data, what's happening with. Uh, deaths, emergency rooms, hospitals, female reproductive, like all these things, I I created this very long algorithm for, and when it's finished running and updating, I upload it to my website in, in the form of pretty pictures. So uh, yeah, I can give you the link. It's, I, I've had some good feedback on it. So sure. it's, um, I'll just write it in the chat here. It's, uh, it's HTTPS, uh, oops, dot, dot, slash, slash, I do not consent with little hyphens in between, dot netlify, dot app. So it looks a bit weird, but that's because it's it's like the best way I could find to convert our code, put it on my GitHub, and then make a website out of it. <laughs> I'm not a web developer, so. Okay. The, I just got your chat message. So it's, I will put it in the article, but it's I, there's a hyphen between all the words. I do not consent. Netify. Netlify. No, I'm not dot netify dot app. Yeah. So that's, uh, we'll look forward to reviewing that. But do, so how does that compare to the open bears? Oh, it's it's not as pretty. Um, yeah, so so open bears. Another thing about open bears is that Liz analyzes uh, or presents the results from both the domestic data set and the mm-hmm. foreign data set, which we haven't talked about yet. So when, when yeah. you download the VAERS data, you can go all the way to the bottom after 1990 and download what we call the foreign data set. Um, and this is, it's actually about as big as the domestic data set. And I've heard two, two versions of what this comprises. I've heard that these are US citizens living abroad filing VAERS reports. And I've also heard that this is overflow from other reporting systems like the yellow card system. So I there are so many field entries missing in this data set. I and I don't know what it is. So I actually don't use it in my analysis. Not like you have to, you have enough data points anyway. Mm-hmm. But Liz actually has a little toggle switch. So you can look at either one, which is really, really cool. Okay, perfect. Um, and I just we tied up some loose ends. One of the questions I wanted you to go over is the appearance of, of the resurgence of viral infections after the COVID jab mm. and the activation of latent viral viral infections that have been present and sort of activated by the jab. So I wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, 
so there are a bunch of papers that have come out uh, that lend some um, uh, ideas as to why this is happening. Uh, one of them says, or one of them makes the claim that CD8 T cell populations are, are becoming uh, compromised. So for those of you who don't know, um, in the acquired branch of the immune system, you have immune cell populations called uh, CD4 positive T cells and CD8 positive T cells. So everyone's heard of HIV AIDS. So um, the, the idea there is that you, you have a virus that preferentially infects CD4 positive T cells, which are the generals of the immune system. They kind of coordinate all the other cells to do their jobs. And so if you have a depletion in this type of cell, then the, the rest of the immune system kind of collapses because they don't have their, their general telling them what to do. But the CD8 positive T cells are the, the killer cells. These cells are in charge of killing virally infected cells. So they're very, very, very important in the, in the context of a viral infection. So one of these studies showed that uh, in people post-injection, the, the, the gene profiles were very, very, very different for, uh, for CD8 uh, positive T cells. So if we're talking about um, going beyond immune dysregulation, if we're talking about uh, uh, immune dysfunction, if we're talking about certain immune cells being depleted, um, that, that could be a possible reason why you're seeing a reemergence of a latent viral uh, species, possibly. Uh, we're also seeing cancer resurgences. Um, so there's another paper that came out that shows that uh, there, there might be problems in the realm of double-stranded DNA uh, repair. So there are two enzymes that have been reported to be uh, impaired that are very, very important in repairing double-stranded DNA breaks. And if you have an impairment of essential uh, proteins that are meant to repair double-stranded DNA breaks, you have serious problems. Mm -hmm. So um, there are all sorts of things People that don't know that DNA double stranded DNA breaks occur every day. It's just, it's a small amount, but they're nevertheless they're present. If you, and if you impair the repairing process, it's, it's going to yeah. be a major problem for you. If you, yeah. One of those problems is proliferation of cells. So mm -hmm. proliferation means like, you know, the cell population expands. So whenever you, you get a certain type of um, exposure to a virus, say a cold or a flu, and, and it, it, you know, it kind of gets the better of you and your immune, your, your acquired immune system kicks in, you get these swollen glands, right? So what that is, is actual populations of T cells expanding. It's kind of gross, but um, so that's the proliferation. So if you have stunted proliferation, proliferative capacities, or if you have an impairment of that process, you don't have an immune system if it happens in T cell and B cell populations. And there's also evidence that that could be happening, but you know, yeah. So anyway, the, the whole um, idea that in, you know, in addition to the hyperinflammation that the spike protein seems to be inducing all over the body, wherever it is, that there's this added thing of 
immune function impairment, that's really scary to me. And I don't know if that's happening only in certain people. It probably is. It's probably happening maybe in people who already have pre-existing condition. But nonetheless, um, this is something really, really, really scary that we need to investigate. And absolutely another reason why these rollouts should stop right now. <laughs> it's it's really, I mean, yeah, and we haven't even talked about prion diseases, my God. Oh yeah, that's definitely another. I mean, you found evidence of that, of the prion disease? There, there's another uh, case of Kurtzfeldt Jakob reported to VAERS this week. Wow. That makes seven. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but, but it's, seven it's seven times 31 at a minimum, maybe 50 or more. Exactly. And it's exceedingly rare. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very, 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 very concerning for those of you who don't know what a prion disease is. This isn't something that there's a solution for. It kills you. It's like, if, 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 if it gets into you, and you start getting like proteins folded bad, you're dead. Like it's sorry to be like, you know, um, saying it like that, but it's, it's very, 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 very serious. And the fact that there are any cases of Kurzfeld-Jakob reported in temporal proximity to these injections at all, I mean, maybe they represent the background cases and they just happen to be filing them to ver. I, I don't know, but it's again, it's another point of, of, of like exceeding relevance, exceedingly important relevance that needs to be explored. So, because even in the remote possibility that something, that there's a causal link between these products and prion diseases, remote possibility needs to be explored because, wow, that would be so disastrous. <laughs> Yeah, in addition to what everything else that it's doing. So you had mentioned that obviously the, all the deaths it's caused, but there are diseases worse than deaths or conditions worse than deaths. Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if you could expand on that. What What is your perception of something that could happen that's worse than death? Because I imagine it's because death in many cases can be instantaneous, like a heart attack or a stroke. It's relatively minimal amount of long-term suffering. So what are the other ones? What are the other options that, that exceed worse than death setting and the numbers of people who are in that scenario right now? So uh, this is a very personal um, thing. The, the, not very many people feel like I do, although I have heard a couple say it. Um, I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm a pro longboarder and I, I'm very active. Um, and without this, this, you know, uh, vessel. Um, I know that I'm more than the vessel. I know that I'm a soul of our, but without this vessel in this reality, in this 3d reality that I'm interacting with everybody with, um, I personally, and I don't, I hope this doesn't, you know, make anyone feel bad, but I personally would rather die than not have the use of my body. Not everyone feels that way, but that's what I'm talking about. There are many, many people who have been uh, maimed by these things. Maddie de Garay always comes into my mind when I think about this. This is a little girl who's 12. She volunteered for the Pfizer clinical trial. 
And within a short time after her second injection, she was confined to a wheelchair and has a feeding tube and is in constant pain. Uh, this little girl was also quite athletic. Um, and this, this isn't something that's going to wear off. Um, she still has a long life and she's probably, you know, she's, she's going to be, uh, you know, having a fulfilling life. Um, but this is not uh, something that's, um, that I haven't seen before either. There's a movie that came out in Israel by a wonderful woman and a team of people called uh, Testimonies, I think Bax Testimonies. And it's a, quite a large group of people from here giving their firsthand accounts of their adverse event experiences. And there's more than one person in a wheelchair, uh, young people. Um, one of them said, uh, you know, he's waiting for the third stroke to come and, and finish him off. Uh, and he said it almost as if he was saying, I, I, I hope it happens sooner than later. He's less than 50 confined to a wheelchair. And um, yeah, so, and, and I mean, for some women, uh, the experience of losing a child um, is probably something that many women don't get over. Um, unless you, you, you get special counsel, I imagine that that's something that can really, really uh, have a, a devastating effect on your life. So that's kind of what I mean by um, there are things worse than death. Uh, there's mental suffering. Um, and if you're, yeah, so yeah, I'm getting pretty, pretty dark and, and deep right now, but um, there, there are so many reports of neurological disorders, and this includes like re resurgence of multiple sclerosis, spinal uh, disorders, brain disorders, brain bleeds, uh, paralysis. Like there's so hundreds of thousands of these reported to Varus now. So, yeah, it's it's. Um, that's the reports. That's not the actual numbers. <laughs> Just to emphasize. So it's millions. It's the tip of the iceberg, as Peter always says. It really is. Yeah, so, well, deep appreciations for all the work you're doing. I'm wondering, uh, do you have any goals in this area? I mean, what do you hope to achieve in the next few months or years? Or what, what, what is, what, what's on your wish list? I want all the tyrants to give it up so that we can all say we actually are going back to life. Uh, this could all end tomorrow. Really, that's how I feel. Um, so that I can go to Australia <laughs> and live in Nisa <laughs> and and surf. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's a good goal. So I'm curious too. I mean, you're living in Israel. So uh, are there lockdowns there? Do, are they forcing? Are there mandates? Have you have you been jabbed or what's what's the story? You know. Um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say that because then they'll come after me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a weird thing here. It's like uh, there's there's no no in in a large proportion of the population there's there's zero resistance because they don't see a problem, and that's that's a dynamic situation because you know most of them who got the first and second jabs because they they don't know any better they went and ran out and got the third. So the compliance level is very high here. 
but it's changing. Like I said, it's a lot of people are starting to, to say, well, well, what another one, you know, like what? And, and when they started, you know, moving in on the kids, there's a larger proportion of people who are saying, hell no, you're not putting, you know, whatever into my kids. So, um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, I personally haven't been able to go to a restaurant for like um, well over a year uh, because you can't go to anything like, you know, if you're not injected here um, by the new definition, the updated moving the goalpost definition, uh, then you, you can't participate in society. That's basically how it is. But um, Israel and Israelis kind of like no matter what the rules are, they always kind of find a way to do things the way that they want, which is like the way that they always have. So it's an interesting dynamic here. Um, my life hasn't changed per se. Like I, I don't, I'm a weird person anyway. Like I'm very, very happy spending half of my time, uh, you know, analyzing data or doing experiments and then the other half being physical and artistic. So like can you, go, I, I can you go to the beach and board? Yeah, I surfed today. It was really fun. <laughs> so they, 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 there's no police on the beach checking well, your There back. were, there were, That's but a, yeah. They don't check your back's passport. There were, like there, there was a ban. <laughs> it's like, I can't even believe they, they, they outlawed going to the beach. And so like the surfing community is like, you know, most of them are as hardcore as I am. Because if you're a surfer, it's 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 not a hobby; it's a lifestyle. If if you don't do it, it, you're you're kind of devastated. And so we would have to go. Like the 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 guys, the cops, the guards, they only started working at seven in the morning. So you would have to get in a session starting in the dark, <laughs> and then get your ass out of there, less to be ticketed. But like you know, even the people I know who got ticketed they didn't have to pay them. None of it was enforced. And, and so I actually made a video on YouTube that says, uh, um, I don't know, it's about the lockdowns. I, I give this little speech in front of one of my surf breaks, but yeah, it's, it's, it, we've had some real ridiculousness, don't get me wrong, but like, it, it seems to have waned because of the compliance level. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with, <laughs> with the moronic variant. Um, you, you know that the acronym for Omicron is... Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. That, that's really funny, hey? And of course, oh, yeah. they couldn't call it the G variant. No, no. Too, too, too diplomatically impolite. So, all right. Well, that's good. I can't thank you enough for all that you're doing and will continue to do and hope you can uh, continue to enjoy your surfing out there. And I'm glad you're not as impaired by the VAX mandates in Israel. So that's good. Uh, life can go on for sure. But well, uh, I'm just going to punch my way through and run away from people. So that tactic has worked. I'm just going to keep doing that. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, you keep up the good work, Jessica. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, and anytime you want to catch up, I'm, uh, I'll make myself available. All right. Well, thanks so much for that.